Thank you for listening to the Institute of World Politics podcast. To learn more about our graduate programs in national security, international affairs, and intelligence, or to support our work in educating future leaders, please visit www.iwp.edu. All right. Good evening. Thank you for watching this virtual lecture event hosted by the Institute of World Politics. For those of you who are new, IWP is a graduate school of national security, intelligence, and international affairs. We have five master's degree programs, 18 certificates of study, a doctoral program, and two new online Master of Arts programs. If you're interested in learning more about us, please visit iwp.edu. Tonight's event is part of the China series sponsored by the Institute of World Politics. Uh, it is my pleasure to introduce our speaker tonight, Dr. Anders Kaur. Dr. Kaur founded Core Analytics, Inc. to provide clients with business intelligence and strategic an analysis of international politics. He is publisher of the Journal of Political Risk. His areas of expertise include Asia, historical analysis, grand strategy, social movements, quantitative analysis, public opinion, and international security. Dr. Kaur led the U.S. Army's social science research and analysis group in Afghanistan, which oversaw 600 Afghan contract employees on 44 survey projects and conducted quantitative predi predictive analysis of insurgent attacks. Dr. Kaur conducted analysis for U.S. Pacific Command, U.S. Special Operations Command Pacific, and U.S. European Command on risks to U.S. national security in Asia and Europe. Dr. Kaur conducted red team modeling and simulation for the Defense Department of terrorist attacks against extremely sensitive military facilities and worked on social networking for early warning of pandemics and biological weapons of mass destruction. His current research focuses on great power, grand strategies, alliance politics, military strategy, authoritarian political influence, international organizations, and the effects of military technology on the likelihood um, and outcome of war. Dr. Kaur, welcome and thank you for joining us this evening. Thank you so much, uh, Hannah, for the honor of speaking to you here at the Institute of World Politics. It isn't every day one gets to speak to future colleagues who are emerging from the paneled halls of an historic Washington building, not least for its Soviet past or for its library of Bill Casey. Something to brag about to the kids as they get back to their TikTok games. I wanna in particular to thank IWP's president, Dr. James Anderson, IWP's founder, Dr. John Lenchowski, my friend Larry Cosgriff, who is a naval intelligence expert here at the Institute, and of course you, the events coordinator, Hannah McGinn. The talk today as Russian, Ukrainian, and NATO forces prepare for war is about the threats that face democracy, including Russia's ally China, which under the Chinese Communist Party is seeking global hegemony. Roche Doshi has exhaustively detailed this in his most recent book, The Long Game, China's Grand Strategy to Displace American Order, published by Oxford University Press. Now Doshi is the National Security Council Director for China, so Republicans and Democrats are on the same page about China, at least on the surface. Dig a few pages into the Biden administration's executive orders, however, and one begins to see a different, softer approach. But I am not here to be partisan. America is at one of its most perilous moments in history and we must be more unified. We have had a string of weak or unpopular presidents. Our allies are turning inward and away from us and China and Russia, both nuclear powers, are threatening a two-front war against democracies that we have left out in the cold, Taiwan and Ukraine. 
We shouldn't be surprised when the leopards chase the rear of the herd and attack those we leave behind. As, as democracies, we must be more unified if we do not want to be killed by a thousand cuts. These current events in Ukraine and Taiwan, terrifying and in the news, are part of a broader and related trend that stretches back over thousands of years of human history, and actually four billion years of evolution. Let's take 45 minutes then, I think we can spare them, to look at today's news in its broadest perspective, how politics over thousands of years of history moves towards broader and deeper aggregations of organization and political power that is not always of the democratic sort. Politics is a human phenomenon, but humans, and arguably, arguably human politics, are part of an evolutionary process that began billions of years ago with the first molecules of life on Earth. Among professional historians and social scientists, looking qualitatively for trends in history or acknowledging the role that evolution might have played or is playing in our politics is out of fashion. For this reason, I think one of the most obvious international political trends is missing from much of our academic thought in the social sciences. But talk about this trend to regular folks on the street, and it is immediately obvious to them. Apes used to be solitary creatures. They were not always organized into bands. They used to meet randomly in the forest, mate or fight, and move on. Then they organized themselves into monogamous couples and then small family bands with a hierarchy in which the most powerful male lorded it over his mates in both the biological and British sense. Ape bands became human bands whose greater intelligence allowed us to engage in agriculture and specialized crafts that allowed for greater social differentiation and the emergence of a professional warrior caste. Family-based clans warred with each other over the critical resources of reproduction, without which humans would fail and be selected out of the population. The generous loners, loners who did not organize for the fight died and failed to reproduce. Their generous loner genes were lost forever in the mists of history. Now we have what's left, greedy guys who organize into armies and who use generosity tactically for their own advantage. I'm only half joking. Sadly, our more successful forebears organized themselves in warrior groups to fight for food, water, and females. These tended to be fairly sedentary on patches of land, which also became the objects over which groups fought. This is the territoriality of nearly all primates, including humans. Land and the other necessaries were required to survive, reproduce, and ensure that the next generation could do the same thing. These warrior groups were invariably patriarchal, something that feminists today are problematizing, rightly. Patriarchal lineages ensure that resources, and therefore power, concentrate from one generation to the next through patrilineal inheritance. The bands fought and organized themselves into clans. The clans did the same to become kingdoms. Kingdoms enlarged into states and empires. The original greed and avarice that helped our forebears reproduce had no logical end for those who rose to the top. Nothing was enough. And they were willing to risk it all to double their dominions. There's something a bit mental about this unmitigated and risk-loving greed for power that can be found repeated throughout history. We see it today in dictators like Xi Jinping and Vladimir Putin, both of whom could have a pretty good life if they just relaxed a bit and made do with what they already have. Now these types of greedy dictators are not only building empires, but their modern equivalent, large alliance blocks, like the former Warsaw Pact under the Soviets. China is trying to organize its own blocks, including the Shanghai Cooperation Organization and the Belt and Road countries, which it sometimes talks about as if they constitute a sphere of influence. 
Conversely, Americans tend to build our alliances, like NATO, for the defense of the independent sovereignty of its constituent states and for the defense of democracy, freedom of speech, freedom of religion, and the right to property. Sovereignty, democracy, and the institutionalization of our individual freedoms tends to maintain a disaggregation of power so that it does not follow the general trend towards its concentration. Americans are very good at this relative to other countries, and we should be proud, ignore the naysayers, and keep it up if we want to maintain our own and others' freedoms. How does this all relate to China, the 10-meter target that is advancing on us rapidly? Politics and contestation have since the end of World War II been largely bipolar between the Soviets and Americans until about 1989, and after that between China and the United States. 1989 was the watershed year. After the fall of the Soviets, Americans thought we were the bipolar, the unipolar, excuse me, hegemon. I joined a seminar of top politics and economics professors at Harvard in the early 2000s that had this as its assumption. They should have known, given the Tiananmen massacre in 1989, that China was not following our democratic lead. Rather, they let us think this comforting thought while actually following Chairman Deng Xiaoping's diktat to hide your strength, bide your time, never take the lead. Doing so effectively built China's economic and military strength for about the last 50 years. In fact, China did not follow its own advice, but even so, we failed to react. President Nixon and Henry Kissinger opened the China in 1972. Two years later, Beijing fought Vietnam, a communist country poorer than China for the Paracel Islands, and then again in 1979 over Vietnam's growing alliance with the Soviets. Beijing was already then seeking regional hegemony. It followed with an attack on Vietnam's forces at another island in the South China Sea in 1988, and then took an unoccupied Philippine island in 1995 called Mischief Reef. The veil dropped again and again, yet we averted our eyes in favor of more trade with China. We got greedy and stopped thinking about our national security, democracy, and human rights, which actually matters more to most Americans than a dollar off their next toaster. The veil really dropped in 2009, when China claimed all of the South China Sea, which is a sea the size of India in a note verbale delivered to every country in the UN in 2012. Beijing gave, a naval, gave naval teeth to its diplomacy with the standoff at Scarborough Shoal. China won, perhaps because of America's weak diplomacy and lack of naval muscle brought to bear on the situation. Again, our big corporations didn't want to risk all the money they were making in China. Beijing at that point must have realized that we were not standing up for ourselves and our allies. They thought about what they really wanted and could achieve, which is most likely the annexation of Taiwan. They have now had 10 years since Scarborough to prepare. We therefore better expect that, ta that Taiwan invasion anytime. Better to be over-prepared than surprised, and we keep getting surprised at Pearl Harbor on September 11 and with COVID-19. One of these times we won't be so lucky as to come out alive on the other side. Nobody wanted to admit that engagement with China, which was mostly business engagement to the tune of over 600 billion annually, which is still going on, and 2.3 trillion institutional investments, which we still have, including from state pension funds, was a failure. China took our money and kept getting more authoritarian. President Trump finally announced that the engagement emperor had no clothes. He and one of his main trade advisors, Peter Navarro, shocked Wall Street with their blunt statements against American businesses colluding with China and with their strategy of tariffs, that are now accepted by even Democrats as necessary leverage in negotiations with Beijing. So now the U.S. and China, along with their respective allies, are ranging up against each other. 
smartly for China, is trying to get the initial fight to be in Europe over Ukraine rather than in the Pacific over Taiwan. After the US and Russia pummel each other with nuclear missiles, China can waltz into position as global hegemon. Beijing is killing two birds with one stone. Moscow figures that Washington will not take the bait and so Ukraine will return by force or the threat of force to mother Russia. Or Moscow is bluffing us and China at the same time. Either way, America looks weak. It's a devious strategy in America, perpetually preferring peace, is as usual on the back foot as the storm clouds of war close in. What historical lessons can we learn to help us during this treacherous time? My book published in November is titled The Concentration of Power, Institutionalization, Hierarchy, and Hegemony. It argues that there is a trend towards an illiberal concentration of power over thousands of years. China is in an optimal position today to become a global hegemon just at the right moment in history, when all other powers like the United States and Russia are destroying each other, or like the European Union are still too disaggregated to defend itself. That's the bad news. The good news is that the United States and European Union are still much more powerful together than is China. We have better technology, so we still have a chance to defeat China, by which I really mean the Chinese Communist Party, and preserve the 1945 UN vision established in the Atlantic Charter of 1941 between the US and Great Britain. President Franklin Delano Roosevelt and Prime Minister Winston Churchill signed that charter on a battleship in the midst of World War II. Despite all our problems, which the dictators, including communists, love to point out, and which confuse or beguile most left university students, the U.S. and Britain have a long and proud history. We abolished slavery when slavery still existed in China. Slavery was not formally abolished in China until 1910, but it persisted in other forms. It continues today, of course, in the form of forced labor of the Uyghurs and other religions. We defeated the German Kaiser and Nazis, a bloody task not assisted much by China. We envisioned and founded the League of Nations and UN, for which communist China did little, if anything. Today, China is actively undermining the UN's original principles of democracy and human rights to be found in the 1948 Universal Declaration of Human Rights. And we defeated the Soviet Union, despite Beijing's communist alliance with Moscow. Given Stalin's support to the CCP from its founding in the 1920s and 1930s, the Soviets, communist China, and now Russia have long been part of the same communist threat to democracy and human rights. And these ideas, both of which serve individual freedom, these ideas of freedom, have long been a problem for authoritarians. They problematize their very existence. Fundamentally, they argue that the excuse me, that the Putin and Xi regimes are illegitimate. So they're threatening to the dictators and the dictators are threatening to us. Despite the big modern gamble of making friends with the dictators that extends back to at least the founding of the UN in 1945 and, the, and their inclusion on the UN National Security Council, our attempts at a democratic autocratic concordat and engagement to that end failed. Our beliefs in freedom have in no way won. Now we are back to the embrace of battle with autocracy. In the process, the ideas of individual freedom that have been inherited through the generations, each of which has been called upon by our own history to defend them, have now been inherited by us. In sum, the United States and allies have a long history of promoting freedom globally, for which we should be proud and inure ourselves to the left's rewriting of history in a manner that denigrates the West and lionizes communism and by extension the dictators that it creates. Have we made mistakes? Yes. The 19th century is full of them. 
But before accepting the mainstream historical hair shirts that the left demands of us, and that arguably feeds China's attempts to shame, divide, and ultimately conquer us, do your research into the particulars. You will be surprised at how a close reading of history complicates their biased narratives. In the fight between the US and China today, we should not be ashamed to stand for freedom and cognizant that free societies like democracies do not fight each other, but rather tend to cooperate for the betterment of their people. For that reason alone, in the incredibly dangerous nuclear age, democracy and our alliances are a superior form of government to the totalitarian alternative offered by Beijing. We have not sought this fight with the CCP, but we will win it. Given the better human rights record of our democratic model politics, then it makes sense to think about the strategies necessary to win and the historical trends and causal processes within which we operate. My book is on the latter and includes 12 main theories, which I will use the rest of this lecture to summarize while drawing attention to their contemporary implications. The 12 theories are really just tools or optics through which to better understand history and what causes historical change for better or worse to the prospects of freedom. Contempt to contemporary ears in a democracy, they will initially sound quite realist, that is, focused on military and economic power. However, they in fact attempt to balance, adapt, and adopt from realist, liberal, institutionalist, and constructivist paradigms. First, the concentration of power. Power has concentrated over thousands of years in the direction of a single global hegemon. This is an unfortunate fact of life, more often than not purposefully obscured by those doing the concentrating. Curtailing that concentration requires balancing coalitions like NATO and institutionalized assurances that any aggregation of power that is required for freedom's defense is limited to the necessaries and later disaggregates back to the sovereign members of a coalition. Second, the oscillation of power imbalances. Power imbalance tends to oscillate randomly, providing opportunities for aggressive nations to take advantage of the opportunities afforded them to expand. The failure to defeat enemies when given the chance is likely to lead to one's own defeat when power oscillates in the opposite direction. Nice guys finish last. Historically, America's two-time defeat of autocratic Germany and attempts to maintain the sovereignty of, of states has been relatively anomalous. Over time, the oscillation of power imbalances more generally leads to wars and alliance systems that aggregate power in deeper and geographically broader ways over time. Third, the ratchet effect. Political, economic, and military ratchets keep larger units from breaking into smaller parts when those smaller parts would otherwise be advantaged, for example, by innovations in defensive as opposed to offensive military technology. When military technology during World War I advantaged the defense, for example, because the defending soldier in the trench with a machine gun had an advantage over the attacking soldier running across fields with a Springfield rifle, it did not break down nation states. Internal borders were relatively static. In fact, even World War I resulted in the League of Nations, which served to move the relevant polity towards international institutions and above the nation state level. World War II had the same effect, but proof that the process did not complete anywhere near global hegemony. The UN resulted, but even then, what could be called the First and Second Cold Wars proved that hegemony was incomplete. The UN is actually an attempt to preserve the sovereign rights of nation states against rising hegemons. But China is proving that the UN can also serve hegemonic purposes through legitimate and illegitimate, 
illegitimate forms of bribery, including legitimate foreign aid and illegitimate payments to heads of state. Economic powerhouses like the US in the past and now the EU and China have immense influence over international institutions. Subunits within international organizations and in larger sovereign polities cohere through side payments during times of stress that would otherwise result in political disintegration. Fourth, the two-step process of expansion. Disintegration does occur in history, but is part of a two-step process of aggregation. The disintegration parts are famous. The fall of the Roman Empire in antiquity, the breakup of European empires in the 18th to 20th centuries, and the fall of the Soviet Empire in the 20th century. The American empire that resulted from the Spanish-American War of 1898 and led to possessions from Cuba to the Philippines and wins in both world wars that resulted in international organizations under the sway of Washington is also potentially at the point of disintegration. What do all these disintegrating empires have in common? A powerful external enemy or enemies that are in the process of expanding. That expansion is part two in the process. The new empires that these enemies built after they vanquished prior empires over hundreds of years sometimes were invariably geographically larger and more powerful than the empires they defeated. The names of the empires changed from republic to empire and now to large alliance blocks and international organizations that are truly global in scope. The only way to break them is with something bigger and more powerful that does the breaking and often tries to hide that breaking in order to solidify its own rise. Fifth, the punctuated equilibrium of concentration. The process of major concentrations of power, minor disintegrations, and what could be called the regestion or reincorporation of the disintegrated parts into the expanding parts creates a punctuated equilibrium of expansion and concentration over time. Instead of the equal rise and fall of empires over time, resulting in a flat line trend with volatility that looks something like this, we have an upward sloping trend towards larger empires and power concentrations, also with some volatility. It looks something like this. Instead of a non-ascending wave-like trend in history, we have an ascending oscillation towards ever greater concentrations of power. America spent its political capital after World War I bucking this trend. It disintegrated the European empires and then froze their parts as nation states, including through the UN but not taking full advantage of our power position to aggregate that power more fully after winning wars, we left ourselves vulnerable to the rise of the Soviets, which America thankfully defeated. We expanded NATO as a result, which included taking on some risk, as should be obvious today, but NATO is still an alliance of independent states. We are still pushing for our values of independence and the disaggregation of power. This helps us gain friends and allies, but it is also a very diffuse form of of power that totalitarians like China can infiltrate and attempt to control. Sixth, sovereign flux. The way we label the dominant political power over a given territory changes over time, yet the old hollowed out sovereignties remain and are sovereign in name only, if that. The true sovereignty shifts upwards from families, clans, tribes, kingdoms, and nations to empires, alliance blocks, and international institutions, which are the likely future of true sovereign power over any given ter territory today um, under, of course, the control of the hegemon. 
The land on which IWP stands is in Washington, D.C., which until 1791 was part of Maryland. In 1608, when Captain John Smith first reached the navigable head of the Potomac, sovereign Native American tribes ruled the area between the two rivers, the Potomac and Anacostia, to the west and east of current-day Washington. These tribes included the Piscataway, plus related groups such as the Anacostank, Pamunkey, Nanjumique, Matapanyant, and Toxahent. Later in the 17th century, the Puritans and Catholics of different colonial villages in Maryland fought each other over religious ideology and their own political independence from each other. Starting in 1724, Maryland and Pennsylvania fought border skirmishes with each other. The British crown reprimanded them, but they ignored it, showing who really had power at the time, the locals. The skirmishes, known as Cressip's War, resulted in a Maryland-Pennsylvania peace treaty in 1738 in the Mason-Dixon line. Thus, true sovereignty in the colonies of the 17th and early 18th centuries existed in a diversity of native tribes, villages, armed religious groups, and states that warred against each other. These warring entities were over time pacified as power concentrated in the states and then federal government of Washington, D.C. The American Revolution of 1776 was the start of an American empire under a different name that ultimately defeated the British Empire and began the reorganization of its parts into an American view of how the world should look. Individual liberties, including religious and free speech freedoms, and the decentralization of power to the nation state level. Maintaining this decentralized system, however, has ironically relied upon American military power or international policing against regional hegemons that seek to defy that system through the aggregation of too much power at the local level, whether that be Imperial Spain, the German Kaiser, Nazi Germany, the Soviet Union, Saddam Hussein's Iraq, or now China and its allies. While we don't like to admit it, America has seen itself as a first among equals, an enforcer of international law over the Native American nations after 1776 and before, over South American nations, after the Monroe Doctrine of 1823, over the Pacific after the Spanish-American War of 1898, and globally after the two world wars. Yet America after World War I rejected the label of, label of empire and modestly called itself a nation state, equal to all the others, because this is what we believe and want, and because it is required to obtain the willing acceptance of other states to our leadership of the international system. And not just leadership, we're leading with our allies. In other words, what we label the dominant polity is misleading because as that polity's power grows, it creates new hierarchies above itself that it relabels in order to obscure its own growing power. China is doing the same with the Belt and Road countries today. It is increasingly powering, influencing, and controlling those countries, yet it attempts to deny this through the fiction of a Belt and Road system of equal and voluntary economic engagement. As power and sovereignty moves to higher levels, Previously free cities, kingdoms, nations, and empires keep their names if they wish, but lose actual sovereignty to the newly invented names of higher level military powers. Nominal shifts to higher level units are the product of the expansion that they function to obscure. Seventh, hierarchical skimming, siphoning, and pumping. Power concentrates through what we what can be called hierarchical skimming, siphoning, and pumping. Those at the top seeking to aggregate power are able to absorb that power by skimming it from those at middle levels of the hierarchy directly, or by a two-step process of siphoning from middle to lower levels for later pumping to the top. 
The disaggregation of family, city, or corporate levels of power can at first seem equalizing until that power is re-aggregated at yet more powerful national or empire levels. The destruction of small farms in the Soviet Union and communist China are examples. What was billed as reform that equalized the power of individuals actually aggregated it to state farms more easily controlled from the capital. Widespread famine resulted. Eighth, the division of power between emergent hegemons and councils of those in support. The history of power and hierarchies is the history of hegemons emerging from what used to be relative equals in an anarchic system, with the new hegemon reorganizing the old equals into councils that support the new hegemon. Kings in the Middle Ages used councils, which are the predecessors to our current legislatures to grow their own power from the fractured remains of prior empires. These empires fractured at times because of the division of kingdoms among heirs, who were thereby diffused and weakened and ultimately lost sovereignty to stronger outsiders. This is what happened to the Merovingian dynasty in France of the Middle Ages, which divided its power among its princes and then lost to Charles Martel, of the Carolingians in 725 AD. Martel maintained a fiction of Merovingian sovereignty for 12 years after. His grandson Charlemagne expanded the empire through conquest and alliance with the Pope in Rome, in which he was anointed emperor. But he too divided his empire among his sons and did not pass on his imperial title. Louis I, the pious, corrected that with a single heir and acquisition of the emperor title directly from the Pope in, 18, in 816. His descendants weakened the empire by fighting amongst themselves, which resulted in the necessity to defend it against Muslim and Viking invaders, causing the decentralization of power among princes and bandits in France during the Middle Ages. A strong French monarchy rose only gradually from this chaos, aided by the election in 987 by the Reims Assembly of Barons of the first of the Capetian kings. They used primogeniture and alliance with the church and Louis IX's administrative reforms in the 13th century to consolidate power. Philip IV was strong enough to establish the Parliament of Paris in 1302 to pressure the Pope into not only allowing the taxation of clerics, but the removal of the papacy to Avignon in France. France became an absolute monarchy in the 16th century. Assemblies like the Parliament of Paris or the United Nations are not necessarily in support, therefore, of greater freedom. They can be used as hierarchies to institutionalize the power of rising hegemons. When the UN was founded in 1945, it acted as a sort of council and multiplier of US leadership, first in the Korean War of 1950 to 1953, where UN soldiers fought and died against Soviet and Chinese-backed North Koreans, and also, also over the years to socialize countries into common goals of peace, democracy, human rights, development, and the sovereignty and territorial integrity of its members. But the UN simultaneously risks these principles if it can be hijacked by powerful totalitarians that effectively resist socialization and support for freedom. As China has risen in economic power, it has influenced members of the UN in Beijing's quest to control or replace it. The US is thus playing a dangerous game, trading contemporary popularity among nations through a light touch for the risk of losing control of our alliances and international organizations 
to what could become more powerful influences from a rising and more thoroughly consolidated power, China. The CCP, Chinese Communist Party, could then use the UN as a rubber stamp legislature globally, much as it currently uses its National People's Congress of 3,000 delegates. Shockingly, Beijing and countries close to it have already taken control of Interpol, for example. Interpol's current president is Ahmed Nasser al-Raisi of the United Arab Emirates. The UAE reportedly cooperates with China on the deportation of Uyghurs. This alone is a strong indicator that China is starting to effectively use international organizations for the growth of its own power. Ninth, the network theory of power. The analysis of power can be sliced and diced in any number of arbitrary ways. Many here will be familiar with Pamisi or Dime, for example. The latter divides power into diplomatic, informational, military, and economic types. There are many other variations on this, with the more complicated being more comprehensive, but leading to slower and more leaden analysis. This book is organized as a three-by-three three grid that I call the network theory of power. It has political, military, economic, and informational power types as, as three rows, and personal, national, and international power types as, as columns. An observation on the frequency and power of these matrix types leads to an obvious answer to the old international relations argument between realists, liberal institutionalists, and constructivists for what type of power is most important. The answer, they all matter, especially when considering the frequency of their use. The military is most powerful but infrequently used. Economics is powerful and frequently used. Information is not, not quite as powerful but used all the time. If we all switched on our phone notifications, for example, and asked our friends to do the same, it might create a continuous bleeping sound throughout the rest of this presentation, but hopefully none of us would pay it much attention. Tenth, the acceleration of power concentration. The theory of intersectionality, often used to analyze descriptive hierarchies, can be applied to international relations to understand their positive and negative compounding of power. Those entities, including corporations, countries, and international organizations that have multiple forms of power in the network, find their power compounded. The dominant power is exponentially greater than the sum of its parts, and the subordinated powers are exponentially weaker than the sum of their weaknesses. As power is used to accrue more power, this leads to an acceleration of the concentration of power throughout history. Towards the end of history, power concentration is very rapid indeed. And by the end of history, I mean the achievement of a global hegemon. The current bipolarity between China and the US is towards the end of thousands of years of violence and wars that determined the present dual power structure. For a political party like the CCP that is power hungry, that dual power structure if the other power is defeated, holds the potential for global hegemony ruled from Beijing. For a power-hungry individual like Xi Jinping, who seeks his own historical legacy, that would be very tempting. So prepare for a major risk, a final war for global hegemony that could happen any time now. Eleventh, a lack of leadership in the hierarchy. There is a lack of leadership in the international hierarchy as national leaders usually are responding to their own selectorates, whether they be voters and campaign donors in the US or military and economic elites in China. Leaders are not always thinking for themselves, but thinking for the powers that put them in place. Finally, in 12th is what could be called hierarchical drift. Competition between political units historically has put major constraints on leaders to maximize the power that they squeeze from those 
who they control. This often requires acting in a way that is popular with the masses, which gives impetus to ideals like equality and democracy, which, which are popular with the masses. As soon as lack of competition removes that constraint to be good to the people, so they empower you, however, expect hierarchies to drift away from serving their base. At that point of global hegemony, human rights globally will degrade in favor of the leader's arbitrary whims, for example, his or her aesthetics, religious, or political idiosyncrasies. Throughout history, fascist and communist dictators unhinged from the realities of serving their constituencies have given us a hint of what this future may hold. It is in our hands, your hands, to stop them. Thank you. All right. So we will take um, some questions now. So if you have questions um, for Dr. Kaur, please feel welcome to comment um, in the Q&A section. It looks like it's at the top of your um, Teams screen. Um, and we did have a few questions come in um, during your remarks. And the first question um, from our attendee is, for those maybe without, you know, international relations background, could you define world hegemonies? Well, uh, an example of a world hegemony would be if Beijing were to defeat the United States um, in a war uh, and institute its own uh, control globally, um, or if Beijing were to somehow influence uh, U.S. leadership so much, perhaps through bribes or other side payments, um, that it could control uh, Washington, D.C. politics. Um, all of this seems very, very far away, but this is, I would argue, in fact, what they're trying to do uh, to countries around the world. The U.S. may be one of the hardest nuts to crack in that sense, um, but um, I think Beijing is trying to do that. Great, um, thank you. Another question, um, do you see armed conflict between the US and China as inevitable? What can or should the US do to rewind some of the conflict forward trends we're seeing? I don't think it's inevitable, but I think it's likely enough that we uh, need to prepare much more than we currently are. Um, there's a professor actually at U.S. Naval War College, he holds a, also holds a professorship at Harvard, um, who's argued that, you know, we should increase defense spending, uh, you know, massively. Um, and I completely agree. Uh, we are in such a risky moment right now with uh, Russia and, and China testing our boundaries in Ukraine and Taiwan, the South China Sea. Um, and who knows what their ultimate plan is. Uh, often, uh, you know, countries that are invading another country will attempt to essentially fake fake out, obviously, um, you know, their, their adversary. Um, so we, we don't really know how, when, where uh, China and Russia will attack. What we do know is that they're incredibly adversarial uh, and, and conquest-oriented. Thank you. Um, another attendee question. And again, if you have questions, um, please feel free to comment in the Q&A section. Um, one attendee asks, can you comment um, on the role or report of Canada with China? 
Canadian responses are not always concordant with U.S.'s to Chinese behaviors? Well, I think that, first of all, we need to look at uh, defense spending, uh, you know, by GDP. Uh, a lot of our closest allies are free riding on U.S. defense spending. Um, obviously, in the case of Ukraine, Europe depends heavily on U.S. Uh, defensive forces. Our massive defense spending is above 3%. Many countries in Europe uh, who are NATO members and, and are therefore required to spend 2% of GDP on defense are not holding up their side of the bargain. Um, and so we really need to insist that our allies do this. Trump attempted this by threatening to withdraw from NATO, which I don't you know, I don't think it it it, it is necessarily the, the right approach, but I think he is right in really focusing on the issue. And I think that we do need to think about ways in which we can penalize allies uh, that are not uh, holding up their side of the bargain on NATO. We've all promised to spend 2% of GDP on defense. Those who don't should face consequences. They should probably be economic uh, tariffs, increased economic tariffs, on countries that don't um, spend their fair share on defense. Thank you. Um, another question here. How does a weak America empower or impact global stability? Uh, a weak U.S., I mean, a, a strong U.S., uh, which is what we've had, uh, I think, after World War II, or we've attempted to have, has been able to maintain stability between nations, partially by um, attacking countries and fixing boundaries. For example, uh, the Iraq attack on Kuwait, we were able to roll that back and return Kuwait to its sovereignty. So um, other countries looked at that, they realized that we could and would likely do the same to them. Um, and so it serves, our strength serves as a deterrent force of, uh, you know, unity and territorial integrity of countries around the world. As soon as we back off, for example, um, if we fail in Ukraine or if we fail in Taiwan, other countries around the world will take that as a green light um, to try to take over their neighbors. So you, you, you would see, I think, massive global instability um, if we fail in these, in these countries. And I think um, even Biden realizes this and he's, he's now being forced um, to be a defense forward, um, defense forward power. Although uh, I would argue we we have made the mistake. Pompeo has rightly argued um, that deterrence failed a year ago. That this is the problem, and that we we should have been much tougher a year ago uh, to forestall this kind of imminent threat that we see today from Russia. Thank you. Um, we do have a, a few more questions coming in from attendees. Um, another question I'll ask is, given President Xi's ambitions and the U.S. distractions with Russia, Ukraine, and other domestic issues, do you think Taiwan is doomed to China's desire for reunification? It seems unlikely that the U.S. can focus resources on all fronts, given that we already seem overstretched. I think we are definitely overstretched, um, but I don't think Taiwan is necessarily doomed. I think that um, you know we're going to need to think about 
asymmetric strategies um, of arming Taiwan with uh, the most advanced weapons it needs uh, to defend itself. Um, you know, if China wants to invade Taiwan, it's going to need to send thousands of ships across the strait. It's going to need to send planes. Um, we have weapons that can shoot these things down. Um, I've also long argued that Taiwan needs its own nuclear deterrent. Uh, in the 1980s, I think we made a major mistake um, as, as a country, the United States, uh, in dissuading and disrupting Taiwan's attempt uh, to obtain its own nuclear deterrent. Uh, it was a different country then. It was an autocracy, so our concern was understandable, but also Taiwan was a very, very close ally of the United States. Um, and today we have a major problem. So I do believe that Taiwan should get a nuclear deterrent and perhaps with very a lot of help from the United States in, in obtaining that. Uh, it should probably be a submarine-based nuclear deterrent. They probably need three, at least three nuclear-powered submarines, uh, missile submarines uh, to maintain a continuous at-sea nuclear deterrent. Great, thank you. Um, and another question here um, is one that you um, maybe see a lot, I guess, uh, just asking about, you know, what is the relationship between China and Russia? And is there any likelihood of them kind of teaming up or joining um, each other's sides to kind of go against um, the US or our allies? Uh, I think they're definitely teaming up. Um, I think they're coordinating on issues like uh, Taiwan and Ukraine. I think Iran and North Korea are probably also coordinating Venezuela. Um, and I think that, I mean, one of the first things to realize in that relationship is that China's GDP is about 10 times bigger than Russia's GDP. Russia has a lot of nuclear weapons uh, relative to China, I think, but it's, it's, it's a much, much weaker economic power. It depends for its foreign exchange a lot on China. It exports a lot uh, of oil and gas to China. So China has a lot of influence over Russia because it can threaten to cut those oil and gas purchases and buy them from somewhere else like Saudi Arabia. Um, so I think that, uh, you know, my assumption usually is that what Putin is doing um, is largely with the blessing of Xi Jinping. Thank you. Um, and we have a lot of questions um, coming in here. Um, and one question has to do with, uh, you know, U.S. elections and, you know, kind of seeing, you know, different administrations come in um, and changes of policy. Does this type of instability, you know, weaken um, the U.S. long term? Well, it, it's the system. It is our democracy. And I don't I think that our democracy um, does have hiccups. It's always messy. Uh, but if you've read the book, um, you know, about uh, the way in which masses of people um, think better, uh, the, the wisdom of crowds, um, you know, I think you see that our democratic system with all its problems and with the turnover of powers um, are you know, it's more efficient, it's a better system uh, than the autocratic alternative. Um, Democrats and Republicans 
you know, we we as Americans always focus on the differences between Democrats and Republicans, but really both of them are fighting for that median voter. If you read the median voter theorem in political science, um, they they get very very the two parties get very very close together uh, relative to what you see in other countries, uh, other democracies even um, where it, that have parliamentary systems. Um, where you have even much more instability and the parties are much farther apart because um, they're, that's just the way things are structured. Great, uh, thank you. Another question, um, which maybe you could deal with, you know, cultural diplomacy, public diplomacy, what are your thoughts on winning over countries under China's influence? Well, during the first Cold War, we did attempt to win over countries by uh, offering them basically more money, um, better aid. Um, and I think we're trying to do that now too. I think that's part of um, Biden's approach. But buying off countries, I think, is also a very, very risky thing for a hegemon to do or for a, a bipolar power to do um, because as soon as that money flow stops, or if the other side uh, can out outpay you, um, out bribe the leaders, uh, as soon as that money flow stops, you lose your power. So, um, I I tend to agree more with a a carrot and stick approach. Um, if countries do not follow what is clearly right and ethical, which is um, rules for the people by the people. Uh, then they should be sanctioned. There should be economic sanctions on them. Um, and I think we probably don't use the stick enough um, on countries that do not follow these basic ethical principles of democracy, um, of supporting democratic alliances. Uh, Thank you. Um... Another question for you. Um, do you see India on board as a U.S. ally against China? Because India sometimes appears to be a strong partner or ally and then sometimes not. I think India is definitely, um, I mean, India has a border fight with China right now um, all along its northern border. China is trying to uh, infiltrate India like the Seven Sisters provinces in the Northeast. Uh, and I, I would argue it's trying to break those off. Um, so India is definitely against China, but it doesn't really want to be. It wants to be, it wants to sit in the middle. Um, it wants to, it has historically been a non-aligned country. It really believes in that non-alignment. Um, it's close with Moscow. Uh, they have weapons development deals with Moscow. They've recently uh, selling the BrahMos missile to Philippines, um, which was co-developed with Moscow, and Moscow still supplies some of the parts. So I, I would argue you can't trust it much, that, that missile system. But, you know, I think India, if it really believes in democracy, it, it needs to more clearly ally itself, not with China and Russia, um, but with the U.S., Europe um, and our allies, our closer allies. Um, I think it needs to clarify um, that it is committed to democratic alliances and it is not just an autonomous actor in the international system looking out for its own interests. Um, we need to change that narrative if we want to cohere 
as a democratic alliance system. Great, thank you. And we have a few minutes left here, so I'll ask you a few more questions. Um, what could be the obstacles for China to pursue its hegemony? What are their weaknesses? Well, they have, I mean, one of the biggest weaknesses, I would argue, is Xi Jinping himself. Uh, I think he's being totally blunt-headed about his approach. Um, he's made multiple own goals and this often happens with authoritarian leaders who are surrounded by yes men telling them that, you know, they're a god essentially. Um, and, you know, he has totally changed the system in China. He's becoming emperor for life. Um, he's committing multiple genocides uh, that are really hurting him in the world of public opinion. Um, the invasion of Taiwan is really unneeded for his uh, for for if he wants to achieve global hegemony, it's a totally backwards approach uh, to global hegemony, even if that is his goal. Um, the sacking of Hong Kong was a horrible idea for him because it um, ruined a lot of the, uh, Hong Kong is where a lot of the money came into China, the investments, um, Hong Kong, the US was treating Hong Kong as different in terms of its export controls. And so if China wanted some technology that it couldn't get directly from the US, it was very easy for China to import that to Hong Kong and then transship it into China. So the, you know, he, the decisions that he's making um, are very, very harmful to his own goal of hegemony. So I would say that that would be the first uh, impediment to China's hegemony. Um, and of course, the United States and our allies uh, are not going to stand by and just allow Beijing to take over the world. They somehow Xi Jinping believes or says he believes in the autocratic model. Um, nobody else does. Nobody else wants uh, Chinese autocracy, Chinese Communist Party autocracy to take over the world. We don't believe in it. We don't like it. Um, it's obvious to everyone. Even I mean, people people pretend to like the CCP um, when the CCP is giving them money, as soon as that money stops, uh, and I, my, uh, I have a source who says that the money is stopping for Hollywood, for example, very soon, or has already stopped. I think we're going, if that's true, I think we're going to see a lot of Hollywood films now coming out that are incredibly critical of China because there has been a massive uh, pent up uh, criticism um, there that on both right and left, um, of what China is doing in terms of its human rights. Thank you. Um, another question here. Um, the 2019 National Security Strategy talked about competition. Would you please talk about competing below the level of conflict known as hybrid warfare, gray zone, competitive statecraft, um, and what is the federal and international mechanism to build a national security decision direct directive 75 grand strategy for China and Russia hegemons? Well, I think there's there's two issues here. Um, an important empirical question, um, which I don't have an answer to, but I think we need to think about very, very deeply is whether or not time is on China's side. If time is not on China's side, if time is on our side, um, 
we can luxuriate in a way. We have the luxury of time and we have the luxury of engaging um, in grayscale warfare types uh, much below the level of conflict. Uh, if time is on China's side, however, and I think there's a good argument that time is on China's side because its GDP growth is so uh, astronomical, if you believe its its numbers, um, but its GDP growth and its military growth are, I think, getting close to, if not very much exceeding ours, um, regardless of whether you believe the numbers. Um, and so if time is on China's side, then I think a lot of sort of gray zone type activities um, or defenses that the U.S. might use uh, could actually just be the illusion of defense against China. Uh, at some point, those gray zone approaches won't work. It, so if time is on China's side, you might have to approach the issue with uh, much more powerful uh, economic or even military means. Great, thank you. And um, I'll ask you two more questions. Um, my next question, uh, alliances for balance of power, increasing costs with expanding power, and self-weakening activity, such as the shift from taking care of their power base, all have curbed hegemons. Are these factors still in play in today's hypersonic and instantaneous communication? Uh, I think so. I mean, all of those factors are definitely important. Um, curbing hegemons uh, requires balancing coalitions um, against them, and I think that's what you're seeing. So as we as we see this this rise of China and its allies, including Putin, and we see the immediacy of the likelihood of an attack, um, I think you do see. Um, nations cohering together um, against these hegemons. That's balancing against the hegemon. Um, you know, so I would hope that, that yes, we can balance against this hegemon and all of those factors are of course important that you mentioned. Great, thank you. And my last question this evening, um, can you comment on how to generate and keep the political will necessary in American decision makers, public and private, to develop a strategic vision needed to combat Chinese momentum? What are the most glaring stumbling blocks to this? Well, I think one of the reasons why we really haven't, the public has not been aware of China's rise um, is because there's so much U.S. corporate influence in our government, campaign donations, uh, revolving doors, all of these things mean that our government officials um, don't want to upset our American corporations. Our biggest American corporations, our most politically influential American corporations are doing this massive amount of business, $600 billion a year of trade, $2.3 trillion of institutional investment, including state pension funds. All of that money has special interests behind it that have political influence. Um, so if we really want to address the issue, we need to educate the public and to educate the public from our from our political leaders that we need presidential statements on this at a minimum. Um, you know, you need to have those leaders 
separated. There needs to be a stronger firewall between our political leadership and our business leadership in America. Otherwise, China can influence our political leadership through our business leadership um, and basically paralyze us uh, in our understanding of the threat and in our response to the threat. And I would argue that today we are somewhat paralyzed. Um, our responses are just not what they should be. We're not acting quickly enough uh, to deal with the threat. And that's the reality. And it goes very deeply into how our political system is influenced um, by our top biggest corporations that are doing business in China. All right. Thank you so much for answering all of our attendee questions. We had a lot come in, so appreciate your patience with all of that. Um, so that's all the time that we have this evening. Um, I would like to thank Dr. Kaur for joining us um, and giving this insightful presentation. And also, I'd like to thank all of you who tuned in. Um, if you're interested in attending other upcoming webinar events, supporting IWP, or applying to one of our graduate programs, please go to iwp.edu. Again, that's iwp.edu. Thank you, everyone, and thank you, Dr. Kaur. Thank you.